Black Cats Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. On today's episode, I want to share a point of view perspective on the concept of substrate utilization, i.e. looking at the ratio of fats and carbohydrates and taking the um, observed phenomena of an increase in relative utilization of carbohydrate at a higher level of intensity to conclude that higher levels of performance are driven by carbohydrate utilization and that we should be training at higher levels of intensity in order to develop this capacity for high-level carbohydrate utilization, or else we're essentially not going to be able to tap into our maximum speed. Uh, I happen to disagree with this idea, and here's why. Let's get into today's episode. So let's begin by reasserting at the outset that I think that one of the driving uh, factors that influences our tendency to see things in a certain way um, is the preoccupation socially, culturally, this comes from domains outside of athletics, that it's only by uh, pushing ourselves to significant extremes that we can achieve. And this is embedded in our Uh, I guess, proto-capitalist kind of mindset of the significance of competition and the rationalization of unique individual achievement, um, where we say that distributive success, right, you know, the fact that very few people are uniquely successful and maybe more significantly very few people really enjoy the full benefits and luxuries of a modern society uh, is justified because they were willing to work hard, and by virtue of working hard, they were capable of you know, achieving those successes, those tangible and intangible outcomes, and that we then further, by implication and more significantly, I believe, rationalize the lack of uh, achievement uh, among other people, the lack, comparative lack of achievement, to say, well, that they didn't try hard, right? And what that does is it conveys personal responsibility. And as long as we feel that we can assign personal responsibility, then we believe that all outcomes, you know, are valid and fair. And, um, you know, I think that's a narrative view that makes the most sense if you're a successful person, because it praises your unique qualities and capacities. It fits in best with your uh, need to satisfy your sense of ego, your sense of self-worth, and it rationalizes away whatever sense of guilt or anxiety or, you know, why me, do I deserve this uh, kind of thing. And, you know, the reality is 
is that success is a multivariable thing and that there are processes and there are patterns of exertion, but it's also the case that sometimes people are successful despite the effort um, that they put in, that they might put in significant effort in the wrong ways. It's also the case that we then are naturally going to try to represent ourselves as working hard um, because that is sort of seen then as as virtuous, right? And our desire to like claim, lay claim to social status um, and things like this is all going on. Um, and this is all like milieu to the way in which we think about training and whatnot. And so when we look at this from a perspective of higher intensity is better, higher intensity is working really hard, that that's this ultimate transformative quality, we're looking at something from a very biased uh, perspective. And I don't, I've said before, I don't think that bias is unavoidable and I don't think bias is necessarily bad. I think sometimes, you know, bias is important because it can encourage us to try to test and look for for patterns. But if we don't recognize kind of what those biases of perspective are, then it's going to be difficult to try to like look for other patterns, right? But if you say, well, I'm biased towards this, right? That's great because it will help you try to look and say, well, what's the evidence for a pattern towards that outcome? But then you want to also then say, well, what about the bias towards this and towards this? And I've talked before how there's this sort of uh, rhetorical dismissiveness that goes on around bias where it's like, well, if you can say that somebody is biased, that they're wrong. Biased is not the same thing as being wrong, right? Bias is that you're, it's what you're looking for, right? It's sort of what you're testing. If you have a hypothesis, that's bias. So if we say that bias is wrong, then that means having a theory or a guest or an observation or a guesstimation and trying to pursue and, and look to see, well, what might support this? Then we're saying that to do that is wrong. And uh, I don't, I think that's a pretty, you know, flawed way to think about ideas and, and problem solvings and questions. Um, so thinking though about this prevalence, right, though, of, of confirmation towards, you know, working hard. Um, a listener uh, sent me, uh, Indigo San Milan has a YouTube channel, which is cool, right? Because he says in his, he has one video on there so far, and he says that uh, he gets lots of, you know, requests for questions and trying to respond to all of that stuff for him is, you know, overwhelming. And that instead he wants to sort of put the information out here, you know, in these pieces so that people who are looking to get access to this can more easily access it than him having to sit and, you know, respond and dialogue with everybody, which I'm sure, you know, when you've coached and worked with, you know, Tour de France winner and some of the, you know, best um, people in a highly competitive field like cycling in the world, there's probably a lot of people who want a chance to talk to you and ask you questions and, and hear what you think. So the first video he did, he talked about training zones and he outlined, I think, six training zones. And he talked about the training zones as being validated through these transitions in the degree of substrate utilization. Now on Black Cat's Run podcast, I've said that there's basically, if you want to think of zones, there's only two zones. I've also articulated clearly that in the past, I have certainly thought about and tried to uh, 
use you know a, a multi-zone model of you know at least five zones to seven zones um and i've done that primarily in, in practice with coaching athletes i've not so much myself because i uh personally don't always want to experience exercise uh, at least historically as being hyper regimented and the reason for that was because i was distributing my effort you know way too hard as a lot of us do you know for example one comment that is interesting in this video um, that he makes is he you know talks about the idea of lactate threshold two or maximum lactate steady state, which people more commonly refer to M as MLSS or FTP. And he says this is something that you can do for 15 to 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, right? And so that's a big distinction from the in cycling uh, for the cyclist listeners, the FTP is equal to 60 minute power. And so then, right, think about how many of you have done a 20 minute test to figure out your FTP. Well, you know, here's this guy, San Milan, saying to us, which makes a lot of sense to me, that, well, actually, 20 minutes is about as long as you can go at that, at that effort. Um, so, right, it's, it's interesting to take a, to like, take a look at this stuff and uh, listen to this stuff, um, right? Because, again, you continue to see the illustration of the fact that a lot of the things that are being circulated um, as being these truisms about these intensities are problematic, Right. So for me, you know, when I got more into cycling initially, you know, I heard about this FTP stuff and it's like, well, right. And you start seeing a lot of stuff that says, hey, this is a good idea. This is going to be effective. And it's like, oh, you know, I'm I'm going to try this, I guess. Right. And I did the 20 minute test took you know, you know, 95 percent of that said, well, that's my FTP and then proceed to do 95, you know, try to do these 20 minute intervals and whatnot. You know, and even bringing it all the way down to five minutes, and they were still like basically borderline impossible for me. I thought I've seen this before. <laughs> I'm familiar with this experience. I've done this with running for the last, you know, eight years um, in high school and college, and working this hard, and it never went anywhere. So I very quickly lost interest in doing it because it was not enjoyable, and. You know, it wasn't leading to progression, and I had prior experience that, you know, suggested to me that nothing was good was going to come of this for me. So I think for other people, right, if we have more success, and remember, success is relative, we don't really know for sure if we're reaching our absolute level of success. We might hypothesize if we're setting the world record, but what we've also seen is that world records tend to get eclipsed. So, right, if your world record starts to f go further and further into the rearview mirror, you know, then you have to start to wonder more and more, did you actually, you, right, former world record holder, I'm sure there's a lot of you listening to the podcast, right, but you have to wonder if you as a former world record holder, was that world record, did you actually get the most out of yourself, right, because you see what people are doing. We also know that training strategies have changed over time, and it becomes very chaotic and very difficult to sort through this stuff. Um, and so for my mind now, where I'm at is that we're looking at this moving this point of efficiency in training. This is my, you know, I think effective understanding is that there's a point of efficiency. And I've talked about how when you look at the historical record, and I think the historical evidence and actually having good 
ways to think about that historical evidence as something that's really lacking. Um, because I think people are contemporary. I think they're elite biased. I think there's an undue fascination with the top performers. I think that there's a lot of desire to sort of like socially maybe uh, ingratiate, you know, uh, ourselves with people who have more performance status because we want the associative benefits of these people, right? We want their sort of, you know, implicit endorsement or we want people want to be feel like they're included into this, you know, that that special tier of that social space. And it's kind of cool kids club syndrome. And, you know, I mean, for my part, I don't really care about that. I, I'm not concerned with whether or not people with good or bad personal bests, um, people with or without Wikipedia pages about their you know, cycling or running or triathloning or Nordic skiing or whatever experience, I, I could care less whether those people, um, you know, accept or endorse or consider what I'm saying. I don't think those are the right incentives. And I think that's a social bias. So I think, you know, when those people want to be glorified for, you know, their achievements. And so then there's this sycophantic behavior of like, well, you can't really rock the boat or, you know, suggest that they aren't the bee's knees because of, you know, their high intensity, right? If you suggested this people, well, actually you're screwing yourself over and you're making yourself miserable or they're not going to want to interact with you, right? So if you're looking to sort of, again, right, navigate this as a, as a social environment, um, you know, that's, and, and so that's a kind of a bias, right? Of is you have to please um, the people who have positions of authority or power or leverage in these social spaces, or else they'll just sort of shut you down or or do what they can to shut you out. And sometimes that's not even intentional, right? It's just sometimes that they feel offended, perhaps genuinely offended. And so then they're like, I don't want to engage with this anymore. So there are some problems is what I'm trying to say when we look at this stuff. And uh, you know, I'm not going to try to claim that I consider myself to be more specifically knowledgeable than Indigo San Milan per se. That's not the point. I don't think that these thinking about these things, talking about this stuff, um, contributing to thoughts, offering points of view, possible perspectives. I don't think this is a competition, right? I don't think this is about trying to be, you know, right or wrong. I think that we want to try to articulate the things that we, you know, feel or wonder if could be the case and then try to give our further voice to what's the reasoning that drives that. So, um, you know, if somebody knows Indigo San Milan personally and sends this to him and says, look at this, you know, podcast guy being mean to you about your YouTube video. <laughs> That's not what we're trying to do here. I'm just sharing, right, the point of view um, that I have and the thoughts that I have in response to this. Um, you know, and again, at the request of a listener who was, you know, looking for to hear some perspective, right? So it's interesting to engage in and talk about the ideas. Um, you know, and I think that when I look at this and listen to this um, video, I think the first thing that stands out to me is he says that he took these ideas of these zones and then he went to go and try to like measure them and see what's going on. So I think that's a problem because... Um, and maybe, right, the way he's describing it, right, maybe that he might say, well, I misspoke, I meant to articulate it in this way, right? But let's respond to what we heard, because that's, you know, I think more meaningful and more specific. Um, 
so if that's your bias is that there's all these multiple zones, right? Then your bias is there must be points of transition. And so then your bias is you're going to look to try to measure points of transition. And I think that's a, a valuable hypothesis. I think that that's a hypothesis worth testing. Uh, and I, I don't think that that hypothesis is validated. You know, I think that you have a zone below the turn point of efficiency, which is the point at which you have the onset of blood lactate accumulation. And then I think you have intensities over that. And I think there's always all kinds of ways to easily demonstrate this. Um, if you go out and you start doing training sessions, whether they're continuous sessions or intervals, and you start doing a few sessions where you're spending you know, reasonable chunks of time relative to the total time of the session working over that point of blood lactate accumulation, you're going to start to feel stale and fatigued pretty quickly. And you're going to start to feel that you're having to sort of grind pretty hard to continue to go out and try to hit around, you know, intensities just around at that point of um, the onset of blood lactate accumulation at the point of lactate threshold, that's going to become really difficult. And that's a reflection of fatigue, because then if you back off for a day or two, you'll come back and you'll feel better again. Uh, and I think reflecting on that, you know, responding to that accordingly is, you know, an important observation, right? Like what is happening in practice in terms of individual experience? And that's not to say people aren't looking at individual practice. They are, but the way that they're doing it, I think is sort of, and I'll get to that later, but I think is sometimes sort of problematic, so what he, you know, goes on to share um, is he talks about, you know, basically there's a ratio, um, and I don't know if he used the word ratio, but I'm going to use the word ratio, that, that you burn carbs and you burn fats and that there's a point of fat max um, where you have the most fats that you burn, right, relative to, you know, any other point of intensity. Um, but overall, carbs are the most significant and you know, he says that as you get, you know, further and further to higher intensities to um, relative to your, right, relative to whatever your level is, your sort of average performance level, right, as you get closer to the higher end of your potential performance level, your potential work capacity, right, you burn more and more and more carbohydrate. And he says that what's happening is you need to be able to produce more units of functional energy, right, which is ATP, and so he says to produce more functional units of energy, ATP, we have to use more and more carbohydrate. And then people say, well, look at this. Lactate is a byproduct of producing um, more and more functional energy, right? As we go into accelerated ATP production, we're producing more, uh, you know, we're doing that through glycolysis, which is breaking down sugar uh, into energy, right? Or you know, basically, right, you're just producing these pyruvates and then you're producing these lactates as byproducts. Um, and it's interesting that he oftentimes talks about, you know, his relationship with, you know, George Brooks and how influential that was and the lactate shuttle hypothesis and all of this stuff. Um, and yet he's, in this video, he's articulating what to me seems like a very classical concept of the prevalence of carbohydrates and, you know, the significance of working at higher, you know, levels where you see higher levels of blood lactate accumulation. And he talks about like the onset of where um, he talks about like lactate clearance and things like this. Um, and to me, that's very much a paradigm where you're saying like the increase in lactate is problematic 
in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, what can we measure and what can we observe in physiology um, is just not always going to be a meaningful conclusion. I think there are a lot of processes happening in the body in terms of its biochemistry, et cetera, that we have no capacity to see right now. So when you're testing people with a metabolic cart or when you're testing people um, with a blood, you know, uh, lactate um, meter, right, you're limited to a particular kind of insight. It's like taking a sheet of cardboard and putting a needle, sewing needle through it and trying to look up, look through the needle and then trying to paint an entire landscape based on, you know, what is visible through that hole, right? And you have to, now, if you can get very, very close and be very, very precise, you might be able to actually take a glimpse of that landscape in a way that might be representative, but it's not easy to get to that point. And, you know, I think doing this work with metabolic carts and looking at gas exchange and stuff like this, you know, so first of all, there's like the traditional methods. And, uh, you know, Tim Noakes has a chapter where he writes about the central governor theory, and it's a free PDF online. But in there, he mentions that VO2 max was something that there's a period where if you wanted to be like a valid exercise physiology lab, you needed to try to get the highest performing athletes in your lab and try to produce, show the highest VO2 values, but that you had to have 100%, you know, success in demonstrating that VO2 max, you know, plateau. Um, And that when his lab, they could, when he did this test, they could never have 100% success showing that. And, you know, he basically implies politely that people running around lying about their success rate with VO2 max testing um, in order to get published and, right, continue to basically pursue their career path. And that's a basic economic incentive is that we want to, you know, assure that the route we've gone down is going to continue to bear fruit and that we're not, you know, going to end up in a dead end and have to abandon our, you know, our all the time and energy that we've put into something to try to establish that as a career path or whatever, right? So there's you know, additional problems that we see here. And, you know, in that case, right, you know, those pieces of evidence are skewed because they are being misrepresentative in terms of their significance or their confidence, right? Um, and then that leads people to believe that these are really essentially important things to practice, right? And within, you know, that scientific method, within that, you know, academic environment or whatever you want to call it, you know, you're supposed to follow those norms, but that doesn't mean that these norms are inherently em- empirical because people can rejigger, you know, or exploit that that process. So, you know, and then using metabolic carts, as they call them, right, to try to, you know, to track, you know, utilization of different substrates, right, carbohydrates versus fats. And that's also um, introducing a, you know, particular kind of perspective. Um, so one you know, question that I would have in response to this substrate utilization and using that to determine these multiplicity of zones is I would, you know, point out that the research in to carbs versus fats, where carbs are the driver of performance and carbs are where high performance happens and eating lots of carbs is what leads to high performance, that that's all flawed. And those conclusions are not really valid. And uh, there's a great article also by Tim Noakes And the title of the article is, What is the Evidence that Dietary Macronutrient Composition Influences Exercise Performance? And in this article, he goes through 
the history, right? So an example of applying a historical perspective to reach meaningful contemporary understandings, he looks at the history of this kind of stuff um, around carbohydrate research, and he demonstrates like the problems and the like incorrect conclusions that were reached and how sort of the accumulation of these bad conclusions through problematic research fed into these um, inaccurate, invaluable uh, concepts of the prevalence of carbohydrates. And he's obviously done, if you're familiar, it would be obvious, but if you're not, I suppose I shouldn't say obvious, but he's done other research too where he's demonstrated that carbohydrates are not necessary for high performance, that you can do high performance um, on a fat diet. And he's demonstrated that you can... Um, just through fat utilization, you can you know produce enough energy to uh, run a sub two hour marathon, and you know that's sub four forty pace, right? You know how many people um, you know in the sub elite public are racing any distance under four forty pace, right? Very few people. So even if you wanted to sort of say, well, you know, but you can't run blank, blank, and blank you know, on that because it's faster than 440 pace. Okay, right? But like how many people are running, again, how many people are really racing under 440 pace for what distances? The vast majority, including very high performing athletes, including people that we consider to be elites are not are not doing this. And I would imagine that, you know, it, it's possible to extend that further. Um, you know, and it's been shown, you know, that, you know, the diet, right? A high-carb diet is an influence of performance either. So really, this idea that we start to decline in performance because we don't have carbohydrate, and that's why we need to constantly eat carbohydrate, you know, that's not because we're running out of this essential energy and we can't produce the energy. Uh, what's happening there is hypoglycemia. Um, we're entering into low blood sugar. And what that does is it triggers the central governor, right? Your brain then engages um, in regulation. Now, the body is going to burn the blood sugar preferentially because um, it's trying to maintain a blood sugar balance, okay? And, you know, in doing that, right, you know, at some point your blood sugar is going to drop. So the more carbohydrate heavy your diet is, and this is this particular point here is me speculating. So this, my speculation here is that if you have a more carbohydrate intensive diet, that you have more variability um, throughout the day in terms of your blood sugar levels. And that probably if you have a, uh, you know, diet with more fat and less sugar intake, you probably um, are going to have a more consistent um, blood sugar level because, and this I think fits with you know, Tim Noakes' observation that people who are fat-adapted, people who eat fat-driven uh, diets are able to just exercise for huge periods of time um, without needing to eat anything. Well, the reason why we need to eat is because we need to um, prevent hypoglycemia and we need to re-engage or maybe disengage the central governor from uh, down-regulating our continued, you know, input of exercise. So, you know, I think that's also a, a pretty significant consideration to think about. So this idea of carbohydrates, well, you're testing people who have high carbohydrate diets in general, and athletes 
tend to be actually driven to have usually to have even higher levels of carbohydrate consumption. So you have all of these people who are not fat adapted, and that's going to be predominantly your sample size. And it doesn't sound like uh, Indigo San Milan is engaged with this idea of fat adapted versus carb adapted athletes, and he doesn't give mention to that. Um, but once the blood sugar drops, right, then we slow down, and those feelings of bonking, um, that's what that is. And I, I, you know, for the longest time, I had thought it doesn't make sense to me that you can just eat a gel or eat something like this and suddenly start, you know, feeling better. Um, because my understanding of how quickly it takes the body to actually digest food is it doesn't happen within minutes, right? And people say, well, it's absorbed very quickly. Well, I wonder. Is it that it's being absorbed very quickly or is the brain detecting that sugar and being like, okay, we can keep going? Because we've, they've, we also know there's testing that's had people rinse their mouth with water, spit it out, and then people rinse their mouth with sugar water and spit it out. And the people who are rinsing with sugar water have longer time to failure. And they're not consuming anything at all. And that suggesting the brain is responding to the availability of sugar, right, which then is implied in its ability to maintain this uh, blood sugar level, right, because the, the body wants to maintain a blood sugar level. Um, but it's also the case that in the state of nature, right, access to these kinds of sugars was very, very minimal. So if you have that sugar, it makes sense that you'd have a high drive instinctively to want to consume that because, Okay, maybe you store some of that as fat, but like you're not going to become obese in a state of nature because there just isn't enough food abundance, right? But that capacity to take a high carbohydrate, high sugar source of energy, you know, whether that might be fruits or that might be, I don't know, honeycomb comes to mind. I don't actually know historically what the evidence is for, you know, you know, early human ancestors going around and knocking over beehives and eating honeycomb. But like in theory, right, how many things are there that are going to give a bunch of a bunch of sugar, right? Like if you go out walking through the woods, um, you know, go running in the woods, look around, right? Where, where do you see things that you can eat that are high in sugar, right? It's not like abundantly available. But we now have created this, um, you know, non-natural sugar abundant environment. So but we aren't slowing down because we don't have enough energy per se, um, right? It's because the central governor is producing a regulated response to exercise. So if we take this and now we look again at this idea of uh, the zones that Indigo San Milan has laid out and the justification of these based on uh, substrate util utilization and the idea that we have to do high-intensity exercise, he says, in order to have access to this turbo, because that turbo is where, you know, races are decided or whatever, that, well, the ability to go harder, he's saying, is basically, well, that's based on glycolysis, and we have to train up that glycolysis by working really, really hard. Um, but you could run at least sub-440 pace just off of fats. So this idea of, oh, you need glycol... And how many people, again, right, how many of us are in races where the race is being decided at sub, um, you know, at sub 440 pace. You know, you could be a really good runner uh, and you're probably never finding yourself in that position in road racing, okay? It's just not very likely. Um, and again, I don't think that there's a hard cap that two-hour marathon pace is the peak of uh, fat utilization. I'm sure it can go beyond that point. I just don't, I don't have any evidence or haven't found any evidence that speaks to that, so that's, again, me speculating. But... 
when we take these concepts about like uh, the relationships between carbs and fats um, and these substrates and substrate utilization, that's assuming that there's this absolutist uh, correct understanding of what's going on. But the significance of carbohydrates and the impact of like declining carbohydrates, um, you know, in ATP production, you know, I think doesn't really totally fit. Um, I also think that when you're looking at that kind of a concept, you're really looking at instantaneously, you know, on a given day of performance, what's happening. And we're sort of neglecting to ask the question of like, well, what are we really trying to do with training? With training, we're not trying to go out and just like, how many days a week can we simulate the demands of racing? With training, what we're trying to do is we're trying to go out and we're trying to engage in um practices that lead to improvement okay and lead to improvement right meaning what well we benchmark fitness as that point of efficiency and if we go back to you know the 50s and the 60s right my favorite cod example um you know arthur lydiard right basically laying out that well we got to the last 200 meters and we were the least tired so we could destroy everybody in the last 200, right? So they're not out-competing people because they have a high glycolytic capacity. They're out-competing people because they are, you know, at a higher level of, like, fatigue resistance or fatigue tolerance, which is probably not the best phrase. Their lactate threshold is just higher, right? And they got to that point by doing training that improved the lactate threshold, Right, so that's why they're getting to the last 200 meters, and they're not fatigued. Um, you know, there's an anecdote he gave of I think at the Rome Olympics maybe, there was an Australian guy I think, and he he saw the Lydiard guys doing 20 by 463, and then this guy went out the next day, and he's like, that's the oh man, that's the seat, that's the hot ticket, and he did that, uh, and then he got eliminated in the first round, and then the New Zealanders went on to get the gold and the bronze medal in the final of the 1500. And, you know, Lydiard's point was that, well, we were doing what was easy for us, but for somebody else, it was too hard. And, you know, that's the fitness level, right? It's not that they were going out, I mean, and challenging this glycolytic capacity thing or trying to maintain that glycolytic capacity. And that led to performance. Because if that was the case, this other guy, if he went out and he did that same thing in principle, then that should have led to uh, performance benefit for him, right? But like he he created fatigue, you know, and fatigue is what limits performance. I additionally do not believe that, you know, glycolytic capacity, which then gets into VLA max, I just don't think those things are really real or useful uh, concepts. And there's other people who've, who've put this idea out there. So I don't think this is totally speculative on my part, but I just don't think that those things are, are valid. I think if you look at the lactate as a you know, desired metabolite, um, the body is pr- making it available, but right, it produces it in response to work demand, um, not in response to mitochondrial uh, capacity. And why that is, I don't know. But I think that this is true, um, that we're producing more and more lactate all along, and that that's what's changing is the availability of energy, and the re- and this is what I mean when I say when we're in, when people are testing this stuff and taking uh, lab test 
methodologies to try to validate different kinds of training intensities, you're looking at instantaneous performance. So it's like there's going to be a point at which people are going to cross that point of efficiency and, and they're going to going to decline um, in efficiency. Okay, And after that point, the lactate starts to accumulate. But what's happening in training is if you bring people back every four to six weeks, you should be able to get to a higher wattage value or a higher velocity before you start to decline, right? So it's like you're not, this is what I don't, I don't, I'm not seeing um, this in the same way that a lot of these people are seeing this because I just don't follow the belief or the idea that glycolytic capacity is meaningful because let's say you hit your glycolytic capacity at five minute pace. People are like, well, you got to train up that glycolytic capacity, blah, blah, blah. Well, like you can just do more lactate threshold training and then like turn five minute pace into efficiency, right? And now you're going to be at five minute pace and you might not have any blood lactate accumulation. So, you know, what does that, what does that mean? Um, I also think, and I don't, again, I don't have a particular source on this, but I'm also imagining that fat adapted athletes who are able to run, you know, really high speed, um, but, you know, not be doing this all based on uh, carbohydrate, substrate utilization, blah, blah, blah. I, I just think that aren't those athletes also going to get to a point where they start to accumulate um, blood lactate, right? And then what's going on with their metabolism in terms of these fat adapted athletes? I do think that exercise is probably, you know, driven by metabolism, right? Our ability to use energy because we're performing work. But I also think when you think about ideas like the central governor and the way in which um, sugar seems to act as a central nervous stimulant as much as anything else, the role of, you know, hypoglycemia um, and fatigue and things like this, I just don't, I the substrate utilization model for training zones is not something that holds true to me. And I think the best way to actually try to look at this stuff is to think about um, individuals and the way they train as being on a spectrum. So on the left end of the spectrum, you have people who uh, only train very easy. So, you know, well below lactate threshold, right? They're never, it would be never exhibiting any accumulation of um, blood lactate. And, or at least people who are as further as possible as far as possible, excuse me, as it is to be to that point. And then at the opposite end, you'd be have the people who's, who have the highest levels of blood lactate, who have the most intensive training um, within the um, time they spend of, of training, right? So on left scale, left end of the scale of the spectrum, who has the lowest levels of um, intensity, basically, and on the right as a percentage of their training volume, and then whose uh, training volume as a percentage of volume has the highest amount of intensity, has the highest percentage of their training being at high intensity, okay? And that if you look at this, um, then I think the point you want to uh, look for is you want to look for the point where you see four things concurrently. Number one, where do we see the most improvement? And number two, where do we see the least injuries? And number three, where do we see the most consistent uh, level of results? Um, and um, also, right, consistent rate of progression. 
And then number four, um, where do we see the like highest level of performances? So if you sort of uh, control or account for a where you have the um, peak of all four of those things together, I think that I, I would hypothesize that that's going to be much uh, further towards the lower uh, intensity distribution than the higher intensity distribution. And one of the problems I believe that exists with looking at uh, you know elite performers as a population group, you know the causality per why most of us are quote unquote slow is multivariable. Um, you know, it's not good to look at the top percentage of measured performers, um, you know, because they aren't the best because they are the best. They're the best because they happen to find their way down that particular uh, pathway where, you know, they, you know, the coach is that they had, they happen to have the most balanced training. If you show up in a team and you're not the fittest athlete, um, you're going to get hammered into the ground, uh, partly because coaches believe that as a coach, their goal is to motivate people to overcome the pain and adversity that's necessary to get in shape, to become, quote unquote, good at whatever it is that they're doing, um, which I don't agree with. I mean, I agree that coaches do that. I don't agree that that's good, uh, useful, effective coaching. Um, but people move in that direction. And I think it becomes, you know, very problematic because it just sort of pushes people out. And the assumption is, well, you know, the the weak die and the strong survive, that kind of, you know, Darwinian rationalization to this stuff. Um, but that goes back to the whole idea at the beginning of the episode that, you know, well, if you work hard, you're successful, right? And we're, we're making this stuff um, we're, we're rationalizing and justifying this stuff. But uh, the reality is if you had a coach who actually identified the level you're at and worked with you from that level and then built that up over time, that's actually what training is. That's actually what fitness is. Um, and, you know, the elite athletes are just at this confluence point of financial, um, lifestyle, uh, benefit, um, you know, and some cases performance enhancing drug benefit that allows them to get, you know, the most um, out of themselves, relatively speaking. I don't necessarily think they all actually are getting the most out of themselves. But, you know, I think the problem with looking at and bringing in the best performing athletes is you're, you know, looking at the, you're looking at a Nash equilibrium. Um, And a lot of us, you know, it's like, you know, I think too motivation does play a real role here, but motivation in the sense of like, you know, you're not going to want to put in an extra seven hours a week of riding on top of what you already do if there's no reason for you to conclude it's going to make any difference, right? And if it's like, well, I could, you know, do seven more hours a week and I might be no better or it might only give me, you know, an additional 20 places in a race with, thousands of people where, you know, you're already finishing at a placing where it's more or less irrelevant to you. Like we just aren't going to choose to spend our time doing that because it's not additive, right? It's not going to really add to our enjoyment. We don't see it as fundamentally altering our performance. Um, so we just aren't going to go, um, to that extent or to that length. Um, and so we just sort of eliminate all kinds of people then, 
from the sample size, and we think we're justified in doing that uh, because we said, well, if they were good, they'd be good, and, and that's just not true. And I'm sure there are arguments as to why it makes sense to test the fittest people and say, well, the reality is though these people are the fittest people, and we want to see what these people are doing under these uh, conditions. But I, I, you know, the reality is there just isn't going to be consensus about this stuff, and you know, and I think this is a point that bears repeating. Um, just because there isn't a consensus doesn't mean that there's a best practice. There is a best way to do this. And I think the best way to do it is to be analytically driven. What habits of training are leading to the, that four variable identity of most improvement, no injury, most consistent level of results and progression, and then you know, also, and I would say this is maybe the least significant thing in some senses, top level performances. Um, and, you know, and for these reasons, I do not agree uh, with the substrate utilization justification of zones. I don't think that there's things happening at these distinct zones. I'm not opposed to training uh, at intensities over lactate threshold. I just think the way in which people are going about it is totally wrong because they're using those intensities as this way to like try to access or build up this characteristic of performance that's best reflected by, you know, that is best reflected by people's ability um, to actually raise their, their threshold. And, you know, again, the, you know, the Lydiard athletes were doing the best because, um, you know, they were the least fatigued. And the way you get the least fatigued is by having your efficiency point, your lactate threshold must then be better than everybody else's. Um, and so you're trying to figure out what is the training that best affects that, not look at um, how do professional athletes distribute their training because then you're just like studying the Nash equilibrium. And uh, the Nash equilibrium doesn't necessarily mean that that actually is the best possible strategy. It just means that most people think the best strategy is to be as close to their competitor strategy as possible. And of course, you know, the irony is, is that, you know, you're just not going to get people um, to let go of this stuff. There's the story that, uh, you know, Arthur Lydiard, you know, interview at the end of his life said that uh, he could coach 18 gold medalists in the next Olympics and people still wouldn't believe him. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Uh, always happy to respond to uh, questions or you know other pieces of content or perspective, I suppose, out there relative to um, you know training and performance and this kind of stuff. So if you have stuff that you're interested in hearing us discuss on Black Cats Run, you can DM us um, on our Instagram page at Black Cats Run, or you can send us an email. Um, at uh, blackcatsrunpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.